You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin here today by calling out to our helping spirits. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine. I call out to those people who lived well, who died well, who met the challenges of their time, and in this way have become our true ancestral helping spirits, those who bring to us the legacy of those who have gone before us. They bring all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines to us in a way that can support the living, to help us to not continue the mistakes that have been made generation after generation, but to understand the value of the past to bring forward and open our hearts and our minds to the creativity and the innovation that our time is calling out of us. May we show up in a way that allows us to truly become the men and the women that we were born to be. And we ask the ancestors to gather around and to help us to meet the challenges of our own time in a way that is good for those who are coming. And I reach beyond the human ancestors to all of life, that which was here long before anyone ever dreamt up a human. I call out to life around us, to those ever more ancient ancestors, and ask them to be with us here today as well. And there are many, many forms of the great diversity of life all around us. I call out to these energies to help us to surrender more deeply into our own true nature, to rediscover who who humans are in the great web of life, to understand which dreams we're meant to bring into manifestation here in the world, to bring forward the songs, the blessings, and the prayers, and to do this in a way that is good for all life on earth. And as the ancestors gather around us here today, let us gather ourselves from wherever our multitasking contemporary brains might be and draw them into our own minds and from our minds to our hearts, from our hearts to our bellies, and from our bellies let us take a moment and touch the earth to give thanks for the path that has brought you to this moment. Thanks for all that is in this moment and all that will be. And to the way in which the earth provides us this place for all of this to happen. We give gratitude for beauty and diversity, for wonder, and for the awe of life. And deep, deep gratitude for this day, whatever it holds. And with the gratitude in our heart for our life and for all that is around us, let's send our energy down through all the layers of the earth moving deeply into the center of the earth and that energy that is before, before abundance, before diversity, before the beauty, that energy that comes only in darkness and silence and stillness. Let us touch deeply into this energy and reach into it as we would reach into a stream of fresh water on a hot day after a long hike. 
Let us reach into this energy and draw it up into our being, into our belly, into our heart and our mind. And as we draw up the energy of the earth, let us draw into ourselves the wisdom of manifestation, how to be here in form in a good way. And with the energy of the earth, let us learn how to ground ourselves in our bodies and our bodies on the earth to understand from this where we stand and what we stand for and to build our sense of home, our sense of belonging from these things that have heart and meaning in our life. Let us not make it simple just by gathering around us people that look like us and think like us. But let us challenge ourselves to open our table, open our home, open our hearts to those who are other than we are and invite this energy in that it might provoke us and change us and help us to become who we really are meant to be. And with this sense of home and belonging and connection, may we come in to right relationship with all aspects of ourselves, right relationship with the environment, with others around us, with all life and right relationship with the invisible world. And in this way, may we be blessed in this day with one moment at least of feeling ourself in that great web of life and understanding our place in the big all that is. And as we reach out into these connections, let us continue to draw this energy up, up and out into the sky and whatever weather it holds for you here today out through the atmosphere and out into the cosmos and all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever way you know that energy or name it, connect with it. See yourself in it and it in you and begin to draw this energy down into yourself, into your day, into these proceedings. And in this way, we call down the essence energy of blessings into our lives, into our work. We call in the energy of protection and commitment and devotion We call in the energy of benevolence and all the wisdom of the cosmos. We call down the beneficence of this experience. We call these energies in that we might be inspired and illuminated along the way. We call these energies in and draw them down into our head and into our heart, into our belly, and send it down to the center of the earth. And in this way, we as humans become the meeting place of these two great legendary lovers, the earth and sky yin and yang and we let that big love that is the essence of that connection awaken the spirit of our own hearts and as the hearts awaken may that crucible of transformation that is within the heart come online and draw up the fiery passions of your own belly the passions that burn only for why you are here and call down the crystal clarity of your mind that helps you know the when and the where and the how of what it is that you are going to do And you bring these energies down into your heart and up into your heart and let them mix and merge and dance together in a dynamic tension that gives birth to a third and most sacred thing. Some sense, some memory, some meaning, some knowing, some awareness of why you are here. And may you find in your heart the courage to do something in this day, large or small, to bring those gifts, the why you are here, to bring that into manifestation in the world. And for the endless resources of spirit help that we have to do this, I am deeply, deeply grateful. May what needs to be said be said here today, and what needs to be heard be heard, and may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. I'd also like to give gratitude to Jose and Angela, Melissa, Brenda, 
Richard, Michelle, and all of the listeners who have donated financially to the show. The show is listener supported. Without the support of listeners like you, we would not be able to have over 350 hours of podcasts, sort of unbelievable, out there in internet world so that anyone in the world who can get on the internet can access this information for free. And for that to happen, we need to pay the bills that keep that happening. And I give gratitude to all of you that are helping me to do that. So thank you very much. If this show moves you in any way, if it moves you to frustration or curiosity or excitement, however it moves you, you've been moved in the heart. And may you do that most shamanic of actions and let what moves your heart motivate your actions in the world. And find something that you can do to give back to the show, to help the show to grow and to be strong. So I give great gratitude to those of you that do all the other things that help the show to grow and be strong. Those who have shared it um, understand far better than I do how to make things grow on uh, in the internet world. Those of you that are posting and sharing, but more importantly, those of you that are engaging. Those of you that are drawing these ideas into your life and seeing how they work, seeing how they don't work, asking questions, bringing in ideas for new shows and the many things that have kept the show alive and I hope valuable for years now. So thank you everyone for all that you were doing. If you do want to leave a donation, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com, go to the support button, scroll down. You can leave any amount, large or small, in any currency. We are grateful for all of it. It all goes directly to keeping the show on the air. And for those of you that are uncomfortable with that means, with that transaction, you're welcome always to email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. And I would be happy to send you a regular old address for a regular old check. And thank you, everyone, for all that you were doing to help me to do Why Shamanism Now. So today, um, we are live, so you're welcome to call in today um, about the show's topic um, at 512-772-1938 or to Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site. And the topic today is the lost art of sleep. And our guest is Dr. Ruben Nyman. Welcome, Ruben. Thank you. Thanks. And, and thank you for that beautiful invocation. It moves it's, me. It's my pleasure. So for those of you that don't know, um, psychologist Ruben Nyman is a sleep and dream specialist. And he has worked for most of 20 years to offer um, sleep, dream, health, support, products, consultation, pioneering, and all of the stuff that's necessary to help us as contemporary people recover this lost art of sleeping. He's written numerous books, created audio CDs, and given hundreds of public and professional presentations on a wide range of topics um, related to sleep and dreams. Also spirituality, stress, psychological aspects of illness, consciousness, creativity, and shadow work which all actually connect together to sleep and dreams. <laughs> For the past 25 years, Dr. Nyman has um, maintained a private psychological practice and worked as a consultant to businesses and organizations. He's completed his undergraduate studies at Rutgers University and the University of Arizona, where he received a BA in anthropology with honors and high distinction. He completed his MS in rehabilitation counseling, also at the University of Arizona, and earned his PhD in clinical psychology at Alliant University in San Diego. Um, for any of his upcoming events, which there are many scheduled into the new year, books and CDs and other sleep products, which we'll talk about here today, you can go to 
www.drnaiman.com, D-R-N-A-I-M-A-N.com. Um, and Ruben, can people con- contact you through that website? Is that the best way to contact well, They can, yes. There's a contact button there. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Internet land. <laughs> so, Ruben, again, thank you for joining us today. My, my first curiosity is what what is it about sleep that attracted you to it as the focus of your work? Hmm. Um, I actually got in sleep. I got into sleep um, through through the pathway of dreaming. Uh, I became very interested in dreams as a teenager. Um, and um, focused my, my, I guess, the first 10 years of my professional life on, on dreaming. I, I got very curious about the relationship of, of dreams and health and um, uh, ended up spending about 10 years as a consultant to San Diego Hospice. And um, my, my, my uh, deep interest there was in the connection between dreaming and cancer. Uh, Carl Jung had written about this years earlier. So um, I did that for 10 years, pretty much burnt out, and uh, I moved back to Tucson where I'd gone to school and tried to open a Ben and Jerry's, and um, <laughs> they wouldn't let me. Um, they wouldn't they let you? I, they said I needed something strange, like I think they called it retail experience. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> but thank God they didn't. And long story short, I, I, um, I ended up meeting some folks from Canyon Ranch, uh, a, a world-renowned health resort, and... Um, um, was offered a position there, and in short, in short order, I started the first sleep program, sleep center, um, an overnight sleep uh, study center. At that time, the first one outside of a hospital in the U.S., maybe in the world. And, and Dr. Andrew Weil was on the staff there, and, and um, I had uh, an incredible opportunity to begin to to look at what we call sleep medicine, you know, sleep health from what we used to call a holistic, uh, from today what we call an integrative medicine perspective. And I've stayed with that. I was at Canyon Ranch for 12 years, uh, did similar work at Miraval for a few years. And the last 15 years, uh, I've been on Dr. Weil's faculty at the University of Arizona uh, as their sleep and dream specialist. Beautiful. So, so you're perfectly positioned then to give us a little thumbnail sketch of what is sort of the current state of sleep in the United States. It's not such a pretty picture. <laughs> no, it's more of a current state of wakefulness. It's a current state of insomnia. I think what goes on in the profession and, and what's going on in the culture um, operate in tandem. I, I think there are some some uh, fundamental um, and and truly grave misunderstandings of what sleep sleeplessness insomnia uh, what sleep medicine is all about. So the first thing I would say is um, we we've over medicalized sleep. There's a sociological term called medicalization, and that's about making what is sort of a uh, um, an ordinary life experience into a medical condition. And there are numerous examples of this. Probably the best one is is uh, pregnancy and childbirth. Um, beginning well over 100 years ago, what used to be an experience that belonged to women and to families and to villages uh, suddenly became a, a, a medical experience. Pregnancy was almost like a diagnosis. Um, by the time we we came into the the mid 1900s, we saw the the beginnings of the natural childbirth movement, which in large part was about 
turning to medicine and saying, hey, you know, we need good medical care, but, but, but pregnancy and childbirth and early childhood is not a diagnosis. Um, it gets over-medicalized, right? So the oh, same thing yeah. with sleep. Sleep has become highly medicalized. If you do an internet search, a web search for sleep, most of what you'll find, the vast majority of what you'll find looks at sleep uh, in terms of its biomedical features. It's what, what's going on in your brain and neurochemistry and even, even scientific psychology. Now, I'm not I'm not diminishing the value of that, but what it does is it clouds um, a, a, a deeper view of sleep. Sleep belongs to the people. I mean, it belongs to each of us, uh, almost all of us. There are some very rare exceptions, but almost all of us knew how to sleep when we were kids. Uh, and today, a lot of people think they need to read a half a dozen textbooks on sleep before they could actually master it. And that notion is uh, is about medicalization. So we need to demedicalize sleep and, and, and again, not throw out the baby with the bathwater to take the best of what science has taught us, but realize that, that in the end, sleep is not a, it's not about a, learning a scientific process. It's really about tuning back into oneself, into a natural uh, innate or endogenous process. Are there any other kind of big prevalent misunderstandings about sleep or sleeplessness that is particularly plaguing contemporary people today? I mean, that's a pretty yeah. big one. The medicalization is a big right. one, I realize. But. Well, the, the medicalization is associated with, with um, um, uh, what I consider an epidemic of dependence on, on sleep medications. And I think that, too, is, is uh, a reflection uh, uh, that takes me back to your question. Uh, people believe that sleep is a knockout um, and, and by the way, so sleep medications do not, we call them sleeping pills, but they do not create sleep. They mimic sleep. They create what I call counterfeit sleep. For the most part, over time, they disrupt normal sleep architecture. Uh, many of the medications reduce, significantly reduce dream sleep or REM sleep. Many of them reduce deep sleep. It goes on and on. So, but, but all of that, our, our proclivity to use drugs is based on the belief that sleep is a knockout. And um, if you question people, which, which I've done frequently, and ask them, like, what is sleep? Most of the answers you get are negative. And by negative, I don't mean bad. They're, they define sleep in terms of what it is not. So people say, well, sleep, what is sleep? It's, it's not waking. It's not consciousness. Even in the field of sleep medicine, the technical term we use for sleep is non-REM. Well, what is sleep? It's not dreaming. Well, all of those knots don't tell us what it is. And, uh, and I think this is a problem. There's a presumption that, that we can define sleep scientifically. But we keep defining it. We keep thinking of it as the absence of waking. Now, um, this would sort of suggest that somebody bopped you in the head with a baseball bat and knocked you out, <laughs> that, that you would be asleep, Right. Or even the dead look like sleep, but sleep is not that. It's it's a very different. It is an it's it's an alternative state of consciousness, like dreaming. Very critical. It's one of three fundamental states of consciousness. We have sleeping, dreaming, and waking. But thinking that sleep is simply the absence of waking uh, closes our minds. It closes our heart to to what sleep really is. I had a. Um a Qigong teacher who who spoke 
really richly about the yin time of sleep and and uh, a, a certain aspect of sleeplessness being the fear of the yin, fear of going into what is contained in that time. Yeah. So it was all about understanding sleep as what it is. It was very um, rich. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think there, there's a lot of fear of that. You know, in, in Western mythology, uh, the god of sleep is Hypnos. And, and I think Hypnos would turn over in his grave if he realized we, we named uh, sleep drugs after him. We call them hypnotics. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hypnos was a very sweet-natured, uh, although he was male, he was really feminine, very gentle. He, he was often uh, depicted or described with, with uh, a bundle of poppies, which represented sleep. There were poppies growing outside of, of the place he lived on the Sea of Oblivion. But Hypnos had a brother, um, and, and some stories, a twin brother, and his brother was Thanatos, the god of death. So uh, it, it speaks to this um, this incredibly simple but profound requirement of of letting go, of surrendering, of dying into sleep. In fact, the Dalai Lama says that the psycho-spiritual experience of falling asleep is identical to the psycho-spiritual experience of dying. Now, always when I say this, I'm thinking that this is really going to encourage a lot of people to want to sleep, right? <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, it ought to. Um, it's a kind of practice. It's a, it's a, I, I think of sleep, uh, one of the features of sleep is it is, a, it is a spiritual practice, sleeping well, learning to really submit, surrender, let go, into sleep is a beautiful experience. And uh, it's, it's essentially, the, I mean, there are other ways of getting there. You know, we can crash into sleep, and that's a synonym that many people use to get to sleep and sort of buy this natural portal. But we can also allow sleep to call to us and yield to it. And uh, I think it's the healthiest way to get to sleep is to learn to surrender to that yin. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Before we depart, though, from contemporary reality into into what could be, would you – so okay, so in my practice, people will go through the long list of all of their presenting issues. And as I'm listening, I'm thinking, hmm, okay, about 75% of this is probably just the result of poor decisions, not, not to be offensive, not like we don't all make poor decisions. But anyway, the result of this sort of cascade of poor decisions, and they don't even bring up the fact that they're not sleeping. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's not even thought of as a problem. Like they figured out who how to adjust to it. They think, and it's not presented as a primary issue in their life, which I think is really interesting in the first place. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that is, I know for myself, if I don't have a good night's sleep, the first thing that goes the next day, other than my attitude, you know, other than just being grumpy, is I start making poor decisions. Right. It's yeah. <laughs> like well, again, it's go ahead. Yeah, what you're suggesting is really important. You know, there, there is, uh, despite all of the media attention, there, there is simultaneously, paradoxically, uh, a profound veil of denial around sleep issues. So, so night itself, you know, so, so one thing I want to say is sleep doesn't just start when we get into bed and turn out the light and close our eyes and nod off. Um, sleep, there's a gradual transition into sleep. And I, I write about night consciousness, which is an old term, actually. And um, I think sleep starts to begin when the sun goes down. There's just a gradual move into it. You know, there's no such thing as nightfall. And I think there's no such thing as truly 
there's no point where we fall asleep. It's really gradual. We just don't notice the transition because we're focused in on the waking side of it. But but night is kind of this duty free zone. There it, it um, a lot of people take off their personas at night, and uh, this is not discussed. It's just it's just something that that um, we're in denial about in the culture. I'll tell you when I talk to people with chronic insomnia. Uh, one of the things I routinely find is they experience a profoundly painful existential sense of loneliness. It's really striking to me when, and, and you know, so people will talk about it clinically, like, well, yeah, you know, I, I couldn't fall asleep, or I got up at two a.m. and you know couldn't get back to sleep till four, and I took this pill. But you know, there, there's also a, a, a deeply personal side to it, and there, there there's some things that show up in the middle of the night that we just don't have a frame for talking about during the day. Um, there are times I'm in, I'm in Manhattan and uh, I'm always struck because I, I actually live outside of Tucson in a very tiny town, but I'm struck by the, the towers and I'll look up at night sometimes. Sometimes I'll get there late in the middle of the night and, and I'm struck by how many lights there are on uh, in these towers with, with hundreds or, or many thousands of people. And um, and I've worked with patients who live in those places, and they've always told me that they're profoundly lonely in the middle of the night. And, and it's striking to me how, how not alone they are. You know, the, the data suggests that somewhere between 50 and 70 million American adults have insomnia. And so um, it's, it's, a, it's a crowded place of loneliness. But, but people don't address that. And, and I think it's a very critical issue in understanding uh, what sleep is about and how to heal sleep. And so then the sleep, that kind of sleeplessness then is, is a contributing factor to a huge host of other problems in people's lives. Because, I mean, it back to the whole sleep is natural because sleep, matters for our body's capacity to maintain its wisdom to how to be healthy. Yeah, b- big time. You know, what's interesting too, so so most of us are now aware of the, the negative health uh, and productivity ramifications uh, of sleep loss. Um, and the field, my field of sleep medicine is interesting. It, it's And, and I, I've discussed this with people. I, I think this, the field ought to be called sleep and dream medicine because it turns mm. out that many and possibly most of the negative consequences of sleep loss actually result from dream loss. But dreaming mm. is, is, a, is a bit of a stepchild of sleep medicine. Um, it, it's almost disparaged. There's a common assumption in, in my field that dreams are meaningless. And, and it sort of closes the door, it paints over, it, it, it obliterates the door, let alone the portal, you know, our connection with, with the dream world. Despite the fact that, that we have not only historical, what I would call spiritual evidence, but there's very solid scientific evidence that dreaming is really important for health. I'm not diminishing deep sleep. We get most of our deep sleep in the first half of the night, and we get most of our dream sleep in the latter third of the night. And so when people are falling asleep and then waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. and can't get back to sleep, they're not so much losing technical sleep, they're losing dream time. But Mm -hmm. this is called insomnia. Anyhow, they're they're both important, but I want to emphasize that we lose our connection with the dream world. With regard to shamanism, uh, I, I think it's one of the reasons uh, people are so 
um, uh, unconscious about the larger world, you know, the, the, this world, the world, you know, Michael Mead refers to the world behind the world. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not concealed. It's right. You and I know it's right there. It's right there. But we fail to see it um, because we, we, you know, we're wearing these blinders. And in part, we fail to see it because we're so disconnected from our own personal dreams. Yes, because if I'm visiting it every night, even if I'm not remembering my dreams, it's making it easier for me to recognize it in the day because it's familiar. Yes, you sense it. You have a relationship with it. And uh, I I think dream loss is an epidemic. I've been talking about this for 20-some years. Um, and, And just the way that we live. Uh, so much of modern lifestyle actually significantly suppresses our dreaming. The amount of alcohol people consume, so many of the medications we use, many sleeping pills, virtually all antidepressants suppress dreaming. Uh, Exposure to light at night suppresses dreaming. It suppresses melatonin. It goes on and on. And of course, it's not a small issue either that, that we live in a world where the dream is disparaged. People look at dream interpretation as a parlor game, right? It's like one of those funhouse mirrors when I, I think, uh, you know, those of us who begin to pay attention to dreaming recognize that it is uh, actually much bigger than waking. Well, and connects us to the bigger aspects of ourselves. You know, when we when we just focus on the waking conscious self who can remember to go buy milk at the grocery store, I mean that's that's really the most finite aspect of who we are, and it mm-hmm. we're not being connected to that larger sense of who we are that that gives our life purpose and meaning and mm-hmm. value. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's so so let's go back now. So we've talked about some of the misunderstandings and some of the deeper. I mean this. Uh, the profound loneliness piece is fascinating to me, but in general then, in terms of your work, what do you see as this art of sleep or or how people recover this or how they've lost it or something? What What is it that we're – how do we get back? Well, let, let me start with the loneliness piece and I'll work my way back to that. This really there, important piece. Yeah, there's a, there's an assumption in our world. I, I mean, it's a part part of this is a rugged Americana individuality, right? It's part part of our culture is that we are individuals, and I, I think there's a there's a deep truth to that. But th- there's an assumption that when we go to sleep, um, when I go to sleep or you go to sleep or any of this, we go deep into ourselves. We close our eyes. We we shut off our senses to the world around us. We leave the shared social world. In fact, you know, people who have a bed partner, this is the politically correct term now, um, <laughs> you know, often the common practice is, you know, when people go to bed together, at some point they'll get drowsy and they'll say good night. It's kind of odd. They're signing off. They're going to be together in bed that night. But it's like, hey, good night. I'm going to my sleep. You go to your sleep. I'm going to my dreams. You go to your dreams. I'll see you in the morning. It's like they're going to different rooms or different places. And um, it's an interesting presumption. But when we go into sleep, uh, when we we sleep well, uh, we, we pretty quickly get into delta sleep or slow wave sleep. This is deep sleep. Uh, from a scientific perspective, the brain is, and the nervous system, and most of the body is as rested as it can be this side of the line of death. It's incredibly rejuvenating. 
but we also psychologically and spiritually, we go into what I call deep self. Um, the presumption for many, many years has been that, that it's impossible to be awake or aware and asleep at the same time. And, and this is really misconstrued. So spiritual writings now have, uh, have support, reinforcement from scientific discoveries. It's actually possible to be in deep sleep and be aware of it. There are studies of meditators, there are studies of people who do nidra yoga. And again, th- this has been a concept that's been around in spiritual traditions around the world for, forever. But we now know that there, it's, it's quite possible to be asleep and be aware at the same time. Difficulty with getting into deep sleep is a difficulty with relating to our deep self. There's a part of us that is cut off from our deep self. And of course, from a Jungian and from many spiritual perspectives, that deep self, which Jung capitalized, is a shared self. So when we go deep enough into sleep, we show up in another shared world. We, we pass through that sense of aloneness. I think people get stuck in that when they can't get to sleep or when they, when they remain in lighter stages of sleep. So it doesn't let them access that shared sense of self. And there's a very similar process with dreaming. Most of us believe, again, we close our eyes, we shut our ears down, we go to sleep, and we go into a dream world, which is, which is solely, discreetly personal. I dream my dreams, you dream yours. And there's, there's truth to that. But I think if we allow ourselves a deeper relationship with the dream world, we come out in a shared dreamscape. And, and those of us who work in this field have encountered, you know, numerous bits of anecdotal data over the years. I often hear, and I've experienced too, of, of people sharing dreams, you know, where, you know, we people show up in the same dream at the same night. Sometimes people in very remote parts of the planet will, will share a dream. Uh, Connie Kaplan, I don't know if you know Connie's work, um, she has seeded dream circles around the world and reported that in the month before 9-11, women dreamers in her circles routinely reported dreams of airplanes crashing into tall buildings. This was a month before it happened. This is not uncommon. So there's a shared dreamscape, and we, when we don't develop a healthy and open-hearted relationship with our dreams, we can't access that shared dream world, where we don't have a, an open-hearted relationship with our personal sleep, we can't access the shared sleep world. And so I'm thinking about this in relative to myself. I think sometimes when I'm wrestling with an issue in my own life that is that is in the moment keeping me from being open-hearted because I haven't figured out mm-hmm. how to get there yet, mm-hmm. it, it is the one kind of thing that will keep me from dropping into that you know, it's like I can't open my heart enough to go into that big space. Right, right. You know, one of the things uh, about sleep is so many people believe that they kind of have to get get everything checked off of their to-do list before <laughs> they can sleep. And, of course, this is a, a major cause of insomnia. You know, we, we never get it all done. And, and right. uh, people <laughs> believe that they've got to resolve their problems and do the dishes and um, and, and, you know, the, the odd thing is that your chances of, of having a breakthrough and insight and resolution to a problem increase dramatically after a good night's sleep and dreams. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think there's a certain skill. Actually, it, it's not a skill. Um, I, I, I learned a long time ago that falling asleep is an act of faith, you know, that, that in the end, um, um, 
I, I was moved when uh, I would read studies about people being in dire circumstances and being able to sleep. I've written about um, my mother, my mother's experience in the Holocaust. That you know, she was fourteen or fifteen years old in a concentration camp, and I think I think what really contributed significantly to her survival was her ability to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there, there is, falling asleep is an act of faith. If I can fall asleep in the face of unresolved issues, you know, people with cancer fall asleep, you know, uh, people in prison fall asleep, people facing dire challenges, you know, people who've lost children can fall asleep. And and really it's an act of faith because it's trusting that's, that there is something larger. So, so if I may say, this reminds me of one of my favorite stories. A reporter once asked Albert Einstein what, what he thought was the most important question um, in, in life, thinking Einstein would say something about the theory of relativity and speed of light. But Einstein said, the most important question in life is, is the universe friendly? Is the universe friendly? And that's a question that comes up around falling asleep, doesn't it? Also comes up mm-hmm. around waking life too. So um, most of us, I think, don't think about that. But I think a lot of our lives are really um, quests around trying to figure that out. Like one moment, the universe looks incredibly friendly. The next moment, it looks horrifying. You know, there's good, there's bad, it flickers. But but that's a fundamental question that I think impacts our ability to let go of waking. Uh, we haven't solved all our problems. We can't figure it out. There's still you know, horrors going on all over the planet alongside of all the beauty and, and miracles. They're, they're both extremes. But can I sleep? Uh, can I sleep in the face of all that? Is the universe friendly enough? Can I trust it? Can I let go? Will something catch me? So how do you, uh, and so then what happens from there with people that are are engaging with your your thoughts around sleep to get from sleeplessness to sleeping what happens next yeah well so there, there we've been talking and I, i'm always grateful to be able to talk about the spiritual side because it's not, a, not always an opportunity i have um it, it is it, it's a spiritual it's a psychological and a spiritual uh process it's also a clinical process and i i, I, I we should talk about that um I think to approach this with an open heart is very critical. We also need to approach it with some skill. And and there's some real basics uh, that are involved here. Um, one of them is that, that we can't continue to unconsciously import waking ways of being into the night. So in waking life, um, the part of us that we call I, uh, I refer to this as the waking self, Mm-hmm. Uh, is necessary, right? You know, you're mm-hmm. talking about you know going to the store and buying milk and doing, doing countless things we we do to to survive and maintain and proceed. There, there's that functional self. That part, the part of me that I call I, is incapable of sleeping. From the perspective, <laughs> from the perspective of waking, falling asleep is an accident. And if if I keep engaging the part of me that I call I and trying to get me to sleep, I'm trying to use I'm trying to use waking to leverage sleep. Uh, I have to be willing to let go of the part of me that I call I. And and that begins with um, I, I like to tell people that when when they enter their bedrooms at night, that to think of this as sort of a a portal. 
it's almost like a, 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 a in, in sci-fi uh, films. It's a, it's a it's a, a space portal. The bedroom and the bed. The bed is a vehicle. It takes you into another world. So. Um, most of us know to change our clothes at night. We wash up. Actually, the National Sleep Foundation found a, a small but but surprisingly large number of Americans slept in their clothing. And, and most of us will think, yuck, when we hear that. Um, but you know what? Most of us sleep in our, in, in our, our daytime waking garb. We, we, we don't change our minds we need to change the mind. So we need to learn to let go with that as we proceed into the bedroom. And from a very pragmatic standpoint, one of the single most important things we can do is recognize that light, uh, light at night is a, is a terrible culprit around our sleep. Uh, light is a major form of pollution around planet Earth now that isn't recognized. You, we, we have countless satellite images of the planet at night. And uh, we see that it grows bright. It's like the earth is on fire. It grows brighter and brighter and brighter. All of that light keeps us stuck in the waking self. And from a, a biomedical perspective, it significantly suppresses melatonin. And melatonin is a very critical neurotransmitter that communicates darkness to the brain and to the body. It tells our insides that it's time to shift gears and to begin to let go, it opens the door into sleep and it has a, a very critical impact on facilitating dreaming. So all of this is about like going down with the sun, getting that when nighttime comes, we have to be willing to slow down. And, and what that means pragmatically is it's not about making sleep more important than waking, but it's about recognizing that sleep and dreams are as important as waking and not to allow our waking world chores to override them. Yeah. So any other real uh, kind of obvious but profound problems like light in ordinary reality that people are not paying attention to? Well, yeah, so that light, light, of course, is a form of energy. And um, there are many other energies that we partake of during the day. And people who don't sleep well frequently find themselves in a vicious cycle. They're, they're sleepy during the day, so they will consume a lot of what I call counterfeit energy. They'll consume, uh, consume excessive amounts of caffeine. I think small amounts of caffeine are fine. They occur in nature, but they'll drink too much. They'll, um, they'll consume lots of energy drinks. They'll consume energy in the form of sugary and high glycemic foods. And all of this throws off our natural rhythms. A lot of people are going 100 miles an hour, you know, um, and by the time they try to get to bed, and this is, this is what results in what I, I called crashing before, that people don't actually slow down. They, they simply hit a wall and keel over. If they're lucky, they'll get to sleep. So it, it's also about um, modulating consciousness during the day. You know, we have really good data that there are, in addition to circadian rhythms, this sort of beautiful um, drumbeat of night and day, there are smaller rhythms that are known as ultradian or brack cycles. There's a rhythm that runs roughly, on average, about 90 minutes of activity 
from one hemisphere to the other hemisphere of the brain. We go in and out of active periods into rest periods, in and out of active periods into really what is a, a more waking, dreamy kind of consciousness. Um, so to stay tuned into that, I think during the day is really critical to stay tuned into rhythms and not to push ourselves. And um, some people may have read about this in, in history books, but there used to be a thing called a nap, NAP, uh, where people would actually stop in the middle of the day and lie down and close their eyes and sleep for 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, this, of course, still occurs in some some primitive cultures throughout Southern Europe. <laughs> but uh, we've lost sight of how important it is to rest during the day. We want to weave, we want to keep sleep and dreams close at hand. Um, I write about something I call the United States of Consciousness. And it's about recognizing that sleeping and dreaming are not just there at night, they're part of the world behind the world. And um, the example I love to give is uh, I had a dog for many years, a Siberian Husky, called Isaac and uh, we, we would be playing frisbee in the backyard and he'd be jumping about you know like flying catching this thing and excited and then my cell phone would ring and he looked at me sort of cockeyed and he knew that at least for a few minutes the game was over and I was always surprised at how within a few seconds he would plop down on the ground and be asleep he went from the heights of waking, from being an impassioned Frisbee player, to suddenly being in deep sleep. And, and it occurred to me that he never really ventured all that far from sleep. He kept sleep close at hand. And, and what this means to the rest of us, um, and this is a very critical piece, it, it calls our attention to our relationship with sleep, not just at night, but we have a relationship with sleep during the day. So um, I like to think of this and personify it in terms of the, the, the Greek god Hypnos again. Um, Hypnos, by the way, in, in, uh, in paintings, he always looked a little bit stoned. He's carrying these flowers around and he looked like he'd been smoking something. And, and I think it's a beautiful depiction. He looked, he looked like part, partly asleep. You know, he was actually a very sweet natured God, beloved by all. But let, let's say that you have a friend who's like Hypnos and, and you've invited him over and he's supposed to come over, you know, that evening late at night to see a film and maybe he's going to spend the night. And then there's a knock on the door. It's 2.30 in the afternoon and your friend Hypnos shows up. So this happens in real life to people. You know, they're doing their thing. They're busy. They're at work. They're doing this. They're doing that. And suddenly there's a knock on the door and it is sleep. Sleep shows up during the day as sleepiness. And it's so interesting, something we pray for and, 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 and would, would pay dearly for at night. Uh, when it shows up at the wrong time, we chase it away. So we all have a relationship with sleep, and that relationship doesn't just occur at night. The way we treat sleep when it shows up during the day as sleepiness will impact our relationship with sleep at night. So when hypno shows up during the day, a lot of people get angry. They fight it. They get pissed at themselves for not sleeping enough. They'll throw coffee at hypnos. They'll throw a lot of coffee. People do the strangest things to keep themselves awake. But if you establish a contentious relationship with sleep when it shows up during the day, it will bleed into a problematic with problematic relationship with sleep at night. So I think the single most important thing uh, I, I say to people about sleep 
is we need to recognize that sleep is not just a functional experience. So for example, today, um, I know a lot of people who will go out to dinner and say, you know, I'm going to have some salmon tonight because I need my omega-3 fatty acids. Well, there there may be lots of good reasons to eat salmon for people who eat fish, um, you know, but but I think the best one is that you like it, you enjoy it. But a lot of people today do things because they're functional. People look at sleep that way. I need my seven hours. I need my eight hours because uh, I've got to do this, that, and the other thing tomorrow, and I need to be fresh. In fact, all scientific sleep research says the same thing. It turns to sleep and it says, hey, sleep, how can you make us better waking people? And sleep says, it always answers in the affirmative. It says, of course, I, I, will, uh, I, I will improve your health, your immunity, your strength, your productivity, your creativity. Sleep does many wonderful things for us during the day. But the best reason, and I think a, a critical reason to sleep well, is because you enjoy it. And good sleepers that I know, good sleepers will always tell me, and this is over and over, this is the term they use, they will say, I love sleep. And they mean it. They really enjoy sleep. They love it when night comes. It's not that they don't like waking life. They like both. But they love the idea that they're being called into another place. They're being called into the end. They love slipping into bed. Some of them giggle when they get into bed. They love letting go. And they also, even though they close their waking world eyes and go to sleep, they actually keep what we might call their third eye open. There's a conscious descent into sleep. And now in contrast, most of us, in fact, most Americans, um, the, the one ritual we engage in routinely before we go to sleep is we set an alarm. And it's a very interesting notion. I mean, if we were being observed by a Martian anthropologist, they'd be scratching their heads. It's a funny thing. We're getting ready to go to bed and we set an alarm. It's as if we, we have to contain sleep. We have to corral our sleep and dreams. Now, if we sat down to a very nice dinner at a fancy restaurant and the waiter came over with a timer and set an alarm and gave us exactly 12 minutes to finish the meal and the alarm went off and they came and took our plates away, we'd say that's ridiculous. If we slip into bed with our lovers and we're going to make love and they say, oh, wait a minute, and then they set an alarm and say, we've got four minutes, that's all it's going to take, you'd think that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, eating and lovemaking and many, many other natural processes, we, we give them their time, we give them their due, we let them happen naturally. But it's so weird with sleep, we set a boundary. And so we set, a, we set a time when we will be drawn out of artificially out of sleep. And by the way, if people people who routinely wake up with an alarm are never getting enough sleep. People who routinely set an alarm are are tearing off the end of their dreams. It's like somebody giving you a, a, a nice novel but tearing off the last 30 pages. So we get into bed and most people turn out the light, they close their eyes, and the notion of going to sleep is an interesting one. When I ask people, well, where do you go when you go to sleep? Most people tell me, well, I start to think about tomorrow morning, you know, is there milk in the fridge for the kids? Oh, I've got a dental appointment tomorrow. I've got to do this with the car. You know, I've got to, you know, you know. So people don't actually go to sleep. 
they when they when they close their eyes, they aim at the shoreline of tomorrow morning's awakening. It's as if there's nothing down there in in these sweet dark waters of sleep and dreams. There's an assumption, so they skip over it. And I think learning to fall in love with sleep is about beginning with the consideration that there is something down there in those deep, mysterious waters. There's a whole other world. There's a beautiful world of serenity. There's a world of connectedness, of shared self. There's a, there's a world of the dreamscape. And I think when people start considering that, they open their minds and their hearts, and they begin to experience that world. And that, that inevitably it's it's i believe it's impossible to experience sleep and dreams and not fall in love with it hmm. it's beautiful um it it does remind me a lot of learning to journey hmm. shamanically and learning learning that kind of surrender yeah. uh without expectation but at least with journey i think people have a uh, at least an expectation or an imagination of going somewhere because they're going, quote unquote, to the spirit world. And I think um, that's not really any more clear to anybody than going, going to wherever they're going when they sleep. <laughs> but, right, right. but somehow the structure around it um, uh, helps. But at the same time, it is the same issue, which is the issue of not surrendering or surrendering. Even the notion of going is interesting because it's a waking world notion. Mm-hmm. You know, what surprises people is that, that it turns out that sleep is the default in consciousness. And what that means is that, that we are, all of us, always already asleep. We're, we're asleep right now. Sleep resides beneath the layer of waking, beneath the, the layer of mm-hmm. dreaming. It's, it's, it's the foundation. We never have to go to sleep. It's already there. Um, when we tell ourselves we have to go to sleep, we engage waking and we, we go in circles. Letting go of waking reveals what's there. It reveals the dream world. It mm. reveals the, the, the world of sleep. That makes so much more sense. And it also sort of leads to that sense of the waking dream being a dream as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very much connected with the night dream. Yeah. So we're kind of running out of time, but I have a couple questions, I think, about some of the, maybe the weirdnesses. Like, um, are there, like, if, if, we, if we see sleep differently, then is there an opportunity in sleep paralysis? Is there an opportunity in waking up in the middle of the night for a little while? Mm. Um, uh you know, these are the things that I, I find people stumble over, but I'm wondering from that perspective of sleep being present already and underneath, are these opportunities to connect differently or something? Mm, yeah, I, I think so. And and I would add to, to that, um, I mean, there are opportunities in insomnia and sleep paralysis and also in, in nightmares. You know, they're dark opportunities, but, but there are different ways we can approach this. I think one of the things to remember uh, is that dreaming, uh, um, both re- the REM sleep aspect and the larger notion of dreaming, uh, dreaming is healing. And uh, we've forgotten that in the world. Um, you know, we, we look at dreams, as I said earlier, as sort of this parlor game and you know, we interpret them. But um, sleep paralysis is an interesting one. I, I, I've worked extensively with people with narcolepsy. And, and personally, I've experienced sleep paralysis. In fact, it's one of the things that got me more interested 
uh, scared about. Uh, this was back in graduate school, but more interested in it. And what I learned pretty quickly and what I, I teach uh, around this is that if we find ourselves sleep paralyzed, uh, again, we tend to try to engage waking um, because we think we're in an unfriendly universe. And the more we engage waking, the more we actually, the more we're fighting it, the more we're conjuring emotion and staying stuck in that. And the best way to get out of sleep paralysis to, is to let go into it, you know, to, to remember that we're safe, that all of our our essential bodily functions are under automatic control, that there's no danger in it, and to let go. So again, it's about trusting. You know, waking up in the middle of the night, um, th- there's, there's ample evidence now that historically people used to wake up in the middle of the night and be up for an hour or two. It was called th- night watch. And it was considered, you know, by many to be a sacred time. Um, in Kabbalah, there's a term called Tikkun Chatzot, which uh, literally means sort of the sweetest hour. But in many sacred traditions, the idea uh, that the middle of the night is a time when, when there's a kind of rapprochement between heaven and earth. In a very literal sense, if you're outside in the middle of the night, you can see the infinite. You can see up into the sky. And so I think there's there's a parallel opening of the heart or the mind or the spirit at that time, and we can recognize that it's a sacred time. I think a lot of people are, even if they're good sleepers, are called into wakefulness. I, I know this happens. In fact, we now have data on this. It happens. It's happened in my life forever, and people I know during the full moon. Uh, even if I don't know and I don't track it, if I don't know there's a full moon, I will wake up in the middle of the night. And uh, when that happens and I can't get back to sleep, I, I know that the moon is full and I'll go visit. You know, I'll step outside. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So there, there's another way of looking at that opening as, as a time of possibility. Uh, it's a time, a time when, when prayer or journeying uh, can be very, very useful. I have this really long meditation practice that from my teacher right now that I I don't actually enjoy doing very much yet, and I I use that <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because it makes me fall asleep, and that's why I can't do it very well yet. And I figure, well, okay, I'm awake in the middle of the night. Let me try that meditation practice, and it seems so, to <laughs> that reminds me. You know, I was saying earlier, I I do I do think of sleep as a spiritual practice, and I have friends who are are. Um, uh, accomplished meditators and you know they'll say wow you know i sat for two and a half hours yesterday and i'll say yeah well i practiced for seven hours yesterday mm-hmm. i count my <laughs> i count my sleep and dreams of sure. spiritual practice yeah sure yeah well reuben we're coming here to the very end of our time and instead of any of the 17 questions i didn't get to um what is there anything else that you would want to say just in closing um to people I think to summarize, we really need to reconsider how critical our connection with, you know, what you refer to as yin or night consciousness and sleep and dreams is. I think, uh, I think our disconnection from that world is a, a, a critical factor in unhappiness. In fact, we know that that people who dream poorly, where, where there's disruption of the dream state, or dream architecture, uh, are depressed. We know that people who have uh, poor sleep off and on for a year, that, that that is the single strongest predictive factor for future clinical depression. So I think it's about becoming happy. And, you know, um, there, there's a certain graciousness in this. You know, we, we live in a world where 
many of us work really hard. We try really hard. And, and, and I think that's great. But I think we need to learn to not just play as hard as we work, but to rest as hard as we mm. work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think rest has become kind of a four letter word. And, and I use it in a broad sense. You know, it's, it's that letting go, that openness. Uh, and, and the more we connect with that in the night world, the more it becomes evident in the waking world. We begin to feel and sense the presence of the dream around us. And I, I do think that, that uh, I, I, when people ask me what sleep is, the best answer I have is sleep is serenity. I think sometimes when we, we experience a moment of inexplicable inner peace, nothing we did, it's just there. I think it's sleep wafting up. I think sleep is there in the background. And I think people who are peaceful are always a little bit in touch with their sleep, even during the day, that we can carry that. And and sleep is grace. You know, again, it's not something we ever have to earn. It, It was there all along. It was our birthright. I think the reason children, generally speaking, are inexplicably happy is they get so much deep sleep and so much REM sleep every night. It's interesting, you know, when in our world, children, we begin to see a pretty dramatic decrease in deep sleep and REM sleep when kids are, are pre-adolescents. And then, of course, they, they turn out to be teenagers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ruben, I'm just going to remind people one of the things you said earlier in the show, which is that sleep belongs to the people. Mm-hmm. And as we move into this holiday time, when people get all involved about giving things to other people, which is fine, perhaps if you're not a good sleeper, maybe giving something to yourself that would allow you to fall in love again with sleep and mm-hmm. let your sleep belong to you again would be a worthy a worthy cause for the new year. Um, yeah. Ruben, thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. If I can do a quick plug on, on what you just said. Uh, sure. My, my last book is called Hush, a book of bedtime contemplations. And it's a, it's, it's a book that rebelled against the, these uh, 300 page detailed things about sleep. It's, it's a one a night reader. There are a hundred spiritual prescriptions for sleep. It goes down very easily and it, it goes right to the point. So this would be a way of, of people giving themselves the, the gift of sleep. Very sweet. So the name again, everyone is Hush and you can actually link to it through our pages for Ruben on our sites, but also for the, this book, other books, CDs, and, and other services, you can go to Dr. Nyman, D-R-N-A-I-M-A-N.com and access any of it. So thanks again, Ruben. You're welcome. And thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I just want to say it's been almost a year since we met in the Bahamas at, at, at the Dream event. And uh, um, your, your work really has stayed with me. So I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. And we give thanks because we wouldn't be here without the ancestors. So we give gratitude to their help and gathering around us here today. We give thanks to the earth below and the sky above and the heart that unites us all. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>